join me as we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We were in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 last week. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we'll get to uh, how this all fits together in a moment. But 1 Corinthians chapter 13 goes like this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist in its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Or as we memorized it, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Pray with me. Father, we've heard your son say, by this the world will know that we are your disciples if we have love for one another. And you did not leave us short on understanding or example of what that might mean. And so this morning, as we are in a passage that is culturally familiar, we would pray that in it we would see Jesus, through it you would change our hearts, and because of it we would be different. Father, this is your morning, and so have your way, we pray in Christ's name, amen. So 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the most common passages that you read at a wedding. Weddings are kind of where it's at. People stand up. It doesn't matter if this is a wedding of Christians or a wedding of non-Christians. Like, it just feels like when you read 1 Corinthians 13, especially the middle paragraph, love is patient and kind, it doesn't do this, doesn't do that, everyone's like, yeah. Then we get married, we close up our Bibles, and we live our lives, and loving your spouse becomes the most difficult thing you've ever done in your life. So you read this thing, and you set up this whole, you know, oh yeah, love, love, and it feels so good, and you're in this moment, you're kind of on a high because, you know, it's your wedding day, or it's your friend's wedding day, and you're seeing it, and you're feeling it, and your heartstrings are being pulled, and then you just don't seem to get along. And it's lucky for us that, you know, we have the scriptures, and we can go back to 1 Corinthians 13, but it's so much within it. It's almost like we just kind of put it on our shelves and forget what's there and what it might mean. 
for us as a church family, for you in your relationship, be it in your own family, with your own marriage, or toward your own children, or here in the church family, uh, with other brothers and sisters that we are together here at Genesis Community Church with, uh, but how does love manifest itself in a community? What emphasis should we put on love? Now, anybody, I think anybody, because love is kind of this universal language. We all desire it. We all want to give it. We have marred expressions of it, so we don't do it perfectly. We know that. But no one, no one that I know, it's like, man, love stinks. I mean, I know why you would say that, because, you know, you might be hurt by a relationship or whatever else, but, like, we're all longing for it, aren't we? We're all longing for it. We want to see it, feel it, experience it, have it, know it, give it. We all want that. Because we know it's significant. But we don't really know until we see the Lord just how significant it becomes. Because we hear passages like, you know, greater love is none than this, and someone would lay down his life. Or God shows his love to us, and that while we're still sinners, Christ died. So when Jesus gives that statement, new command I give to you, Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's one of our memory passages from this year, John 13, 34, and 35. He didn't just leave us hanging. He didn't leave us with a good luck. Both his example, Jesus' example, and even what the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13 shows us when we're kind of struggling to go, what do you mean? How do I do this? And the great thing about 1 Corinthians 13 is how incredibly tangible it is. Simple, even. I mean, really simple. It's not like he's giving this kind of crazy, you have to put in like 17 digits to get it right and unlock the code. He's giving some pretty simple things that so often feel so far out of reach for us. Like we don't even know how to get there, how to do it. And if you follow along in 1 Corinthians and you've been reading it with us, with our reading plan, then you know the Corinthians, like just about any church, were rather screwed up. They didn't, they didn't know how to love. They got all kind of messed up with one another's sins. They approved certain sins. They certainly shouldn't have. Like they condoned it. They were glad about it. They were arguing with Paul back and forth about what should be and what shouldn't be. And so he actually wrote this letter in response to them responding to him. And so they're going back and forth about how you should operate, how you should live. And Paul's trying to kind of set some trajectory for them. They're getting really excited about spiritual gifts, which is what you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And Paul's like, the gifts are great. They're great. You should pursue them. You should desire them. You should use them in your services. Like He's not going to say, don't do it. Like, grow up in the Lord and build one another up in maturity. Like, for the common good, we can do this together. But he interjects right here after discussing gifts and trying to help them understand how they operate. He ends chapter 12 by going, let me show you something better. Let me show you something better. And he goes into chapter 13 on love. He doesn't, he doesn't say pay no attention to gifts or pay no attention to how these might operate. But he does say, pay more attention to something that you seem to be neglecting. How to love. And so we'll just go through this paragraph by paragraph. 
As I said last week, um, and our hope as a church, and kind of quoting Tom Oden, um, that we say nothing new. Like new is kind of cool and shiny and exciting, but we want to say old truths. We want to just, you go, man, that's, I've heard that before. Great. Let's hear it again, because it was probably quoted at your wedding, and you probably forgot how to do it. So, we start with the first three verses, and we will see this. Love is the spectacular demonstration of power. The Corinthians love these cool gifts that seem to be so awesome and so exciting and so dynamic. And Paul goes, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me explain to you something. That love is much more significant than the things that you're trying to pursue, the priority with which you are giving these. It seems like you're underemphasizing one over the other. So let's raise up love. And so he gets into all these kind of conditional statements. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, if I use that, I can do that. But I have not love. I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You can't even hear anything I'm doing or see anything I'm doing. I'm just making noise. Hey, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. I'm nothing. So he talks about how he might speak magnificently. Then he moves to prophecy. If I have prophetic powers, and in my mind, because the Corinthians really loved knowledge, and I could understand all mysteries and all knowledge, I had faith. Because faith is good. So as to remove or move mountains, Jesus talked about this. But have not love, I'm nothing. Then he talks about his own sacrifice. The own way he might sacrifice. If I give away all I have, so now I'm super sacrificial, right? If I give away all that I have, and and we have this this idea, and deliver up my body to be burned. Your, Your translation, if you're reading along with me here, might say like, deliver up my body that I may boast. Because there's just kind of this idea, what's, what exactly, is it burned or is it boast? The, the, the language behind here. And I think boast does make a good amount of sense because I think what he's saying is, if I give up all that I have, right? Not just martyrdom, but like if I just exhaust myself so I can say, look, I have nothing left in the tank. I gave it all. I gave it all. If I give up my entire body, that might just be done for the sake of Jesus. But I have not love. I gain nothing. And so right here in these first three verses, Paul is trying to set up for us this understanding that you can go after spectacular, but it really is nothing. Power without love is nothing. Spectacular signs without love are nothing. If we have great enthusiasm for God, we get really excited about Him. And we really love talking about him, but we can't love. We're nothing. If we have the biggest libraries in the world, and every week we're finishing another three books for the sake of Jesus, and we can't love, it doesn't matter. If our theology is on point, and we can correct anybody on social media with a couple of swift words, and 
Bible passages and we don't have love, there's nothing. If we can swoop in with the most astute brain or raise our hands in worship and just, yeah, and cheer on God, but have not love, we're nothing. We gain nothing. And yet, so often, we evaluate one another based upon lesser things. We evaluate one another by, man, they really seem to be passionate, really excited. They must love God because, like, they're here. They're singing loudly. They're cheering. They're raising their hands. They must love other people, too, because they just must. You can have as many Twitter followers as you want. You can have as many likes as you want. You can have as many whatever as you want. But if love is not the abiding presence in us toward one another, then we're nothing. Now, how do I know that it's toward one another, not just like toward God? Because everything that Paul is about to say in the following verses, that next paragraph, are all ways that we show love to one another. I'm not patient with God. God's patient with me. I'm not, I don't bear with God. God bears with me. So it's not as if they're me toward the Lord and how I show love to God. It's me toward you and you toward me and us toward one another. That's what he's about to get into. But if you don't have these as a church, you don't really have anything because you're missing the most significant aspect of walking with the Lord together as a faith family. And this is great. Because verses 4 through 7, Paul essentially says this, love is demonstrated, not discussed. It's demonstrated, not discussed. I say this to my kids pretty regularly. Do you know that I love you? And they say, of course, Dad, yeah, stop talking to me about this. I say, how do you know? How do you know? Because if I just tell you, anyone can tell you, Anyone could say it. Anyone could say, I love you. And it's true that sometimes we don't even hear it. I'm not saying don't say it. But how do you know? If I say to you, I love you, you say it to me, you say to your kids, you say to your grandkids, I love you, how do they know? And this is where I think Paul just kind of starts to just nail it because it's shown. It is shown, it is shown, it is shown. I can't say that enough. We show our love. And he gives ways that we show our love to one another. How does it manifest itself in a church? How does it manifest itself amongst the relationship of believers who come from different backgrounds, who have different stories, who have different convictions, who have different things they like and don't like, different feelings about what's good and not good, different ideas on what's hip and not hip? How do these people get together and somehow stay unified? Remember last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, a big part of this letter was because the church just did not get along they divided up and followed other leaders and other teachers. They had these little factions, the Paul, the Apollos, the Peter, the Jesus. They all had their people. And Paul's trying to go, how can we show what is supreme here? And it is love. So there are kind of three movements here. He says it is certain things. It is not certain things. 
and it is always certain things. That's kind of how he sets it up poetically. It is certain things, it is, it is these, it is not these, it is always these. It always does these. And we kind of start off and go, we get that. <clears throat> Love is patient. How patient? Doesn't say. It just is. Not is usually, not is sometimes, not is often, just is patient. Patience is a lacking quality for churches to just be with people. Be with them when they're crazy. Be with them when they're weird. Be with them when they're difficult. To just be with them. To work through issues patiently. To pray and to watch and to see God move. And yet, we start with patience. Why? Why our Lord is patient with us? Think in a given day, in a given week, in a given month, or in a given morning even. How often you believe and behave in ways that do not honor God. And how he bears with you. How he stays with you. Love is patient. We should do the exact same thing for one another. When somebody says, I just need a little longer, we don't go, you've had enough, right? I've given you enough warnings. Now, I understand. Going, well, hold on. They're like, well, we love to be quick to correct because we're all these correctors. You know, there's, a, there's church discipline, and it says, you know, follow this process, and there's divisive people, and it says do this. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about operating normally within a church family. We should be patient with each other. We should be patient. Because God is with us. Love is patient and it is kind. Man, one-two punch right out of the gate. That would solve most of our problems if we were just patient with people and kind to them. We like to hang around with people who are nice. They're just nice. I don't want to hang around people who are jerks. Like I want to go around people who are kind, who smile. Who are, what would we say, loving. You just want to buddy up next to them, and hear from them, and talk to them, and be with them. So love is patient. It bears with us. Love is kind. It's glad to see you. Smiles when you walk in the room. It says, I missed you when you've been gone. Looks for you. Notices you. It's kind. And you just think, going back above to what he said, if I speak like this, if I do this, if I know this, if I have all the knowledge, if I have all the wisdom, if I have all the faith, and yet just replace it. I'm not kind. I'm nothing. If I were incredibly sacrificial, I gave away everything I have, but I'm not patient. I'm nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. What is love not is these things. It is not certain things. Love does not envy to look at what you have and wish it were mine. Does not envy. Nor does it boast to look at what I have and look at what's mine. 
So it doesn't just look around and go, oh man, I wish I had that, I wish I drove that, I wish I looked like that, I wish I had that job, I wish I had that. It doesn't do that. Nor does it boast to talk about what it has. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. And you can kind of follow, follow the train because you're seeing it. <clears throat> doesn't long after somebody else's stuff. Doesn't boast in its own things, which kind of sounds rude, doesn't it? Well, look at the next ones. It is not arrogant, full of itself, nor is it rude. I mean, these are simple phrases. You just go, if I could not be these things, or I could be these things, I'd be all right. Arrogant. To think that it is right. In a way that demeans and harms and hurts others. Rude in the way that it treats others. I mean, we think about this. Think about the grudges that sometimes we feel when we go to a restaurant and somebody's not nice to us. I am never going there again, right? One-star Google review or Yelp review or whatever else you might do. Never again. The server was so rude. And I just always think that's funny because we kind of replace kind, you know, you know thing with thing. Like, you're rude to me, well, I'm going to be rude back. And tell you, you're terrible. It's not arrogant or rude. And I just think, in a world that puffs up knowledge, that always just wants to be right, that settles in and kind of digs in and will not allow for itself to be corrected. People who are not arrogant, there aren't many. Who don't feel as if their position is just the best. Their views are supreme. Their things are in no way to be corrected. They can walk around just so sure of themselves. Not arrogant. It is not rude. This is why I was told this story of my buddy one time who this guy was talking about how his church did or didn't do something right. I can't remember what it is. These stories all blur together, don't they? But I remember his just kind of commentary on a conversation he was having about joy. And he just said to, to me in telling the conversation, did you tell your face? Did you tell your face you were glad? Because you don't look it. You just don't look it. And I'm like, that's actually kind of true. Right? I, like, sometimes we just don't smile. I talked to a guy, a brother uh, who I knew formerly, who was an elder at a church in Kenya. His name was Paul. And Paul smiled all the time. All the time. And it wasn't fair how much he smiled. And I remember one time he was talking to me about it. And he goes, Hans, the Lord has just gifted me with something. And I thought, I, I, was, I was ready for it to be like super intense, right? Like Kenyan elder, I want to hear this thing, right? Getting a PhD in chemistry, smarter than anybody I know. Like, and he's trying to go through it. And he's like, the Lord has gifted me with something, and I didn't even know I had it. He's like, I just smile. I just smile. And I'm like, you're, you're talking about that as a, like something God has gifted you with. But what is it? It's just joy, and so I just go, yeah. He's like, he's like I have, I'm so shocked by the amount of people who just talk to me because I'm smiling. And I'm just like, yeah, why? It's really loving. It's just something that he is clued in on with the Lord that it's loving. 
When you're arrogant or rude, it often shows up on your face, doesn't it? I love what Stephen Colbert said one time when he was talking about like fear and laughter. He's like, when you're laughing, it's impossible to be scared. That's why he likes humor so much. When you're laughing, it's impossible to be scared. You cannot be scared and laugh at the same time. Now, of course, I'm like, I don't know, you know, if someone's going to look up some, to research something and let me know that. But I thought, well, you know, just in regard to kind of how things generally operate, yeah. When you're having a belly laugh, you're not too worried about things, are you? But when you think of arrogant and rude, and you're kind of like, oh gosh, here they come. I just stern looks on their face, but they're really serious about God. Sometimes you just got to be glad that you're his. And you don't need to be so sure of yourself. No, keep going with this. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It does not insist on its own way. And again, think about church life. Oh, I wish our church did this differently, or I wish we did this differently, or I wish we did this, or I wish we did that, or I wish we did I mean, don't you, don't you hear that all the time? Don't you feel that? Don't you read that in 1 Corinthians 1? Oh man, if only our pastor preached more like Apollos or more like Paul or more like Peter or like more like Jesus, right? When we read the Sermon on the Mount, we just go, oh, Jesus, he's there. It does not insist on its own way. I mean, you could also just call this sermon, I just call it something about, you know, nothing without love. You could call it like, how to not ruin a church. How to not ruin church life. Don't try to insist on your own way. Like then you're just done. Because everyone has opinions. Multiply the amount of people in this room, even infants, by 14, and you might have the number of opinions that exist within this church, about this church. And again, kids count. My kids still want more candy every Sunday. I'm like, okay, I got to... You don't have dum-dums, Dad. Last church had dum-dums. I'm like, I know, okay, fine. We'll give you candy. I don't know. Will you love Jesus more if I give you candy? Kidding. Not how it works. But to think so often, so often, don't we just say, you should do things like this? If you did this, there wouldn't be a problem. If you did this, if only you operated like this. Honey, I love you, but, oh gosh. I mean, those are like marriage killers, aren't they? I love you, but if you'd lived this way or you did this thing, things would be better. If only you operated like this, I am sure we would have no problems. Well, now follow back, right? Isn't that an arrogant position? And isn't even the delivery of that idea kind of rude? To insist, to be sure of your own way. Well, what does it neglect? What are you forgetting in that moment? Again, you're forgetting the grace of the Lord towards you in Jesus. Who puts up with you. Who seriously, think about this. When we read the scriptures, we are hearing the inspired words to us on what really is best. And what so often do we do but ignore it? But ignore it. And the Lord 
is patient with us. Some people have stories of things, you know, may, may it be sins or habits or beliefs that the Lord just slowly whittled away at. It is not as if all of a sudden something became true. You're like, oh gosh, you know, It's that God was patient with you as you were coming to the end of yourself about something. He was patient with you. And he was gracious with you. And he was loving with you. Though his ways are best, he endures with you over it. As you think time and time again that your ways are best. And your opinions are best. And your thoughts are best. And yet the Lord is loving with us. It is not irritable or resentful. I think, I think sometimes maybe inappropriately, we think that irritability is a spiritual gift. All right, it's the opposite. Irritability is from the flesh. It is easy to get bugged. It is not easy to not get bugged. They get bugged about all kinds of stuff. We wake up too late, or wake up too early, don't get enough sleep, don't do this, somebody cooks something we don't like, or order comes out wrong, right? Some sermon illustration didn't just quite hit right, we sang some song, we did something, and all of a sudden we're bugged again. And we use phrases like this, couldn't you just stop? How many times do we have to? Dot, dot, dot. Haven't you listened? Love, which again is the supreme demonstration of power, which is really God's presence and character being made known, being made manifest within the midst of the church, doesn't do those things. Remember what Paul said in those first three verses, if I have done all of these things and I've done them in an incredible way, but I don't have love, it does not matter. I got to keep going to how these ideas fit together. It's not irritable. It is not resentful. You might hear it this way: keeps no record of wrongs. Some of your translations might say doesn't keep account. But don't we love to do that? In fact, something I always have to do, regardless of how many times I've bugged you or you've bugged me or we've bugged one another, whatever it might be is to not use a phrase like this because we love to do it. You always, you know it, you always do that. Well, what did you just do in that but betray the fact that you are keeping an account? That you're a scorekeeper on what is right and what is wrong. You always act like that. Like, man, that's a pretty definitive statement. And, and, what does it do? <clears throat> it lacks confidence that God can transform. When you drop always on people, when you're just bugged by it, when their behavior has kind of worn you down and you're just over it, when you start to drop those things, what do you do? You're, you are rejecting or at least paying zero attention to confidence in God's transformative power. And so it could be the 50 bajillionth time that someone has always done that. But what might God do the next? 
if the brother or sister alongside them is patient and kind, is bearing with them, is listening to them, is believing in them, is confident in what God might do. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. Verse 6. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It does not retweet somebody's mistake. It does not say, see, I told you that that's how they would behave. See, I told you that that's how they would act. See, I knew it. Look at that. Fool. Doesn't do that. Doesn't do that. Again, in the same way that you could call this like a primer on how to keep church together, you could just call it good habits for social media. Whatever you want to call it, right? It's like, how does God make himself known amongst us? It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It doesn't look and go, man. Or, like the Corinthians are doing in chapter 5, yeah, we know there's sin here, and it's great. We're totally for it. We're down. It doesn't, it doesn't do that. It rejoices in truth. Delights in truth. Won't even magnify error. Stays in what is true. Now listen to these three phrases. And there's a key word that kind of shows up a lot. Love bears. What's that word? All things. It believes all things. Hopes all things endures all things. Bears, believes, hopes, and endures all. And most of us, brothers and sisters, have an incredibly low capacity at doing any four of these. Bearing with people. Which is another sign of patience. Believing all things. Don't you just sometimes wish that people would believe the best about you? Trusting God's spirit and what he might do and that he might work something out? Do you long for people who are like, listen, God can do it. I trust you. The Lord will do this work. Bears all things, believes all things, is confident in what God might do. Hopes all things, that it longs for a transformative world, a transformed church, transformed people. Hopes for it, looks for it, works for it. And endures all things. That we stick it out They were here. I'm not going anywhere. Rather than bailing out. Saying, I've had enough of you. In fact, you're reading in 1 Corinthians about a church discipline issue. And then you get into 2 Corinthians, and it seems like Paul has revisited that issue. And he even uses this kind of language where he's like, hey, you should probably let that guy back in now. It's time. Why? Because his view and his hope and his, 
work is for restoration, not for division. It's for people coming together and being reconciled. He's now like, see that guy, you know, see you later. And yet so often in church life, especially as churches just show up like across the street or wherever else, or so kind of all over the place, it becomes incredibly difficult to be these things together because we don't even know. We have a very low muscle, you know, work for endurance. Or just endurance with people is rather low. Three weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks. That's about all we got. I'm out of prayers to pray. I'm out of things to say. I'm out of conversations with you. When are you going to change? But that doesn't hope all things, does it? It doesn't believe all things, does it? It doesn't say God is doing something here. You go, I've had enough. And again, think about that language and that position. But what is that? But arrogant. I've had enough because I have determined what is enough. I have determined what is right. If you read the book, uh, it's the Nine Marks book on church discipline. It's a great book. It's a great read because church discipline is one of the funkiest things in the world. Like how do you go with a brother or sister who's in like sin and work through a process of seeking their restoration before you say you're not welcome here? That's, a, that's an odd conversation to have, isn't it? I mean, like, like most churches, let's be honest, just try to avoid it. Well, let's just, let's not worry about it. Let's just kind of brush it aside. It's not a big deal. But it's something the Lord has given to us, something that churches are to enter into. But the question that they, they kind of wrestle with in that book is, well, when do you finally pull the trigger? When do you, when do you say that's it? And their response, which I really appreciate, which I think is both pastoral and wise, is when you are aware of just how belligerent the sinful behavior is and unrepentant that person is. Right? Like so, so as you start to see, but sometimes that might take four months to figure out. Sometimes that takes one night. Sometimes it takes six weeks to figure out what's really going on. So the whole point in that is like there isn't a clear cut after this many conversations or after this many prayers, or after this many meetings. But to work with people, right? Because love is what should be motivating us, even in something like that, where somebody's sinning and you want to correct them and see them restored in the Lord. So the answer is kind of like, sometime between when you find out and sometime later. And you go, well, that's not very helpful. I want the map, right? I want to know exactly how patient I am to be with someone. And like, well, sometimes it's clear. And they behave in such a way that really their fellowship or behavior within this church is no longer something that is going to be beneficial for the building up of this body. Other times it's not so clear. And there's a lot of hoping and praying and bearing and working and discovering and trusting as you work through that process. But love, again, is the motivator. So when I say love is demonstrated, not discussed, it's because the scriptures don't ever just say, like Jesus, even to his apostles, isn't like, hey, you should just tell people you love them a lot. No, he washes their feet. And then he says, like I've done this, you should do this for others. The love of God is always demonstrated, it's not just said. And so then for us, our love for one another should always be demonstrated, not just said. And you do that with your time. 
And you do that with your presence. And you do that with your words. And you do that with your prayers. And you do that with your face. Right? You show it. You do it in your home. You bear with your spouse. You care for them. You let that be the dominant posture that exists. You don't walk around like what my cousin calls the Googer scowl. Like, I'm really trying here, you know? Like, you know, I did I need to Botox it? I don't know. Like, to get my face just tighter? I'm not sure. He goes, oh, yeah. He saw one of the pictures of my kids. He goes, there's that Googer scowl. I'm like, I'm trying to change the scowl. But a good question would simply ask would be this. How do the people in my life or the people in my church know that I love them? How do they know that I love them? Or just an inventory. If I looked at the behavior of 1 Corinthians 13, would I be able to say with confidence that I love those people in my life? Or am I demonstrating some habits or behaviors that are not loving? Seems to be that as we read this, that would be an issue for us of repentance. It is not okay not to love. The Son of God died for us to show us what love was. To bring us into a right relationship with God. And so there is really no right that we have to not be loving. To not show it to not listen, to not pray, to not expect, to not hope, to not be with people in difficult moments. We have no excuse because the Lord has been all of these things with us and even more. Any amount of love that you have to show will pale in comparison the love of God shows to us every single moment. And so... The passage finishes with a simple thought as to why this even matters. And it's this. Love's eternal. Don't focus on the lesser important things because love is eternal. So focus on the things that matter. That abide both now and later. That exist here and there. Listen, so love never ends. All these gifts that you think are really cool, they're going to be gone. You're not going to need them anymore. Prophecies, they're going to be done. Speaking in tongues, they're going to be gone. Having this great knowledge, gone. We know in part. We prophesy in part. We have limited understanding of all that will be. But when the perfect comes, when we see the Lord and we know, partial's gone. Parcel's gone, so anchor yourself in the things that will last, not the things that don't. And then he uses an illustration. Hey, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. When I saw what was more important, I stopped worrying about this. We see in a mirror dimly, we don't know all that will be, But when that perfect comes, face to face with our Lord. I know in part, 
But then I'll, be, I'll know fully. But maybe even more importantly, even I, as I have been fully known by God. And so now he positions it eternally, right? So don't just value the gifts, value love. Well, what is love? Love is this. And why is that more important? Because it's always there. Because it's always there. That, 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 think about it. The manifestation of love that we have for each other, the way that we can show it, the way that we can demonstrate it, is an intrusion of eternity into this world. The way that we know how to show it, what God has given to us in his son, is to demonstrate something to the world that exists because of God's eternal character and eternal plan. And so when we focus on things that are eternal, we get to show the world the things that abide. When we get worked up over the things that will pass away, be they gifts or be it our house or our cool job or whatever, when we focus on things of this world, we're giving an incomplete picture of what matters most. So we latch our hope and our expectation onto those things that are eternal. Paul doesn't say, forget it, reject it, remove it. He just goes, prioritize it because it lasts. 